Welcome to another week and another episode of Cannon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I have the honor of speaking with sociologist Dr. Mark Regnerus from the University of Texas Hook'em Horns. I highly recommend the two books I've read, Forbidden Fruit, Sex, and Religion in the Lives of American Teenagers, as well as Cheap Sex, The Transformation of Men, Marriage, and Monogamy. So without further ado, meet Dr. Mark Regnerus. Good to meet you, sir. Appreciate you being generous with your time. Okay. So you're All right. you're working Let on your me, third book. I'm working on my fifth. Fifth book. So. Okay. Yeah. The. Uh, What's this one on? The next one is on the sort of the science of sexuality. I mean, not not like the numbers themselves, but <laughs> the process of of generating science on it. Okay. So it's pretty uh, intense. I mean. The doing of it, not necessarily. So far, I, I mean, I've just started writing. So. Awesome. Um, and then I wrote a book called "The Future of Christian Marriage," which comes out in August. Excellent. And I did, I did include a chapter in that on cheap sex was transportable to other countries. So. Oh wow. Which of course it has. So somewhat fresh in my mind. Is there a book that you have that sort of went further than maybe you thought it would? That you were like, man, I'm kind of surprised this is taken off. Yeah, well, I think Cheap Sex did the okay. book, right? I mean, right. the the first one I wrote, Forbidden Fruit, was liked by sociologists. Okay. Um, I, I mean, and some practitioners. The second book, I don't know, it didn't seem to fly as far, premarital sex in America. Uh, my colleagues didn't seem to like that one, but they really didn't like cheap sex but that's the one that traveled furthest uh partly because lots of people think about some of these notions and uh they're just not there's not a ton of science out there on them although people have been writing about the subject for quite a while and it seems like uh it's been a fairly low hanging fruit from my <laughs> perspective so right so all right about the sexual market did you say Yes. Okay. All right. You are a sociologist. You're at the University of Texas, Hook'em Horns. You mentioned that your colleagues liked your first one, which was that it had to do with Christians in particular, right? Or evangelicals? It was about religion and religiosity, but it was only in the only United States. So, yes, we're talking about large Christians. Okay. Part of the reason I think they liked it was because I think I there's a dig in there towards evangelicals uh, who were at the time responsible for most of the discourse around abstinence. I don't know if that's entirely still the case. Uh, I think it's probably a little bit more balanced, but general abstinence language has receded some. Anyway, I think they liked that part. Okay. Uh, I didn't put it in there intentionally. It's just sort of what's, what's going on. So, uh, but that was a, a book that was about people who by and large were not sexually active. These were teenagers. And so it got more interesting once I did the second book, which is on young adults, and, and the third book, which is a little bit older than that. So. And so the third is the third one, cheap sex. Yes. yes. Okay. And you said that's the one that they did not like. Yeah, it was pretty clear uh, that my colleagues weren't happy with that. Although I don't write to please them, so. <laughs> 
So uh, one always likes it if you can please the people and be con and you know be satisfied that you've told truth about things as best you can discern it. Sure. Uh, that's not always possible. What do you think happened between that book and that book? Um, the first book, you know, if I'm poking at sort of evangelical narratives around abstinence and sort of aspects of them that I think are a little bit more unreasonable or, or, or less thoughtful about sort of distinguishing the idea that there's this period of time when people become uh, have reproductive capacity, right? You know, puberty, menarche, and then, but the rising age at marriage that everybody seems to be experiencing, is, that leaves a large gap that I feel like evangelicals are addressing, gap at a time, um, which of course is true, and I think they knew it, uh, but I think my colleagues kind of thought that was kind of cool. Anytime you can dig evangelicals, sociologists will like it. Um, but that, you know, then I moved away from religion in the second book and in the third book. And in the third book, is in particular, I talk about you know the mating market, which a lot of people don't like the notion of a mating market. <laughs> um, Christians aren't crazy about it because it feels um, too one-sided in how it talks about sex and sexuality and right. relationships and my peers in sociology thinks think it's uh, unfortunate because I'm I'm not uh, because I'm referring to sex distinctions between men and women and gender sociologists are fairly committed to the idea that two aren't all that different what's different is largely socially constructed and I just don't buy that argument I don't think I don't see it in the data. They'll say, oh, it's, you know, you will see it in the data if we are successful in uh, sort of egalitarian trajectory that we were on. So perhaps they're right. Uh, I, I, I doubt it. I think the difference is that will remain. And I'm not the only one that thinks that. Other sociologists have said this and they get into various degrees of trouble because the core of the discipline is deeply egalitarian and dominated, I'd say, by gender sociologists. Yeah. So I have found your economy of sex lens really helpful. Um, Good. And you, I think you are getting at it. What, what is it? Uh, I imagine not everybody is very happy about you talking about sex in terms of a uh, commodity. Economy? Or, yeah. Or as commodity. a Correct. Yeah. I think that a lot of people don't like talking about it that right. way. And I, I say that, you know, we don't have to talk about it this way if you don't want to, but if I ignore it, it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means I'm ignoring it. <laughs> I'm not crazy about ignoring aspects of reality. Sex is something that is priced by everybody, really. And it, it, you, know, you may not think they ought to, but, you know, and Christians should be able to get this a little bit better because they talk about, you know, you're of such great work and things like that, uh, which is a symbol or a direct signals of value, right? Immense value. So I don't know why we can't just come to terms with this. And I think people can and do. It resonates a little bit more with men who probably perceive this a little bit more readily, the, the, the notion of pricing sex and the, the yeah. idea that there's a, a mating market out there and that, you know, some of us 
are have a better position on that mating market than others. But I, I you know, I think women can see it too, especially once you sort of outline it and detail it. And you don't want to remove it from the romantic overlay because that is in there squarely, right? So there's a there's a scene in in A Beautiful Mind where Russell Crowe's character, uh, the mathematician, walks up to a woman in a bar and sits stands there uncomfortably, and she finally says, "Well, I think you're supposed to ask me for." a drink and he's like i don't actually know what i'm supposed to ask you to for for you to have sexual intercourse with me but how about if we just assume i said those things and we can just get straight to the sex and she thinks oh that's how so romantic and slaps him in the face and walks away um so we know that there's a romantic overlay to sex and sexual behavior and yet what russell crowe says in this film is not entirely untrue like there's also this thing that people want so and it's it's very typically overlaid with notions of romance and commitment and all these things but that's uh doesn't mean that it's not present so anyways that's uh the kind of the the blunt economics of sex most of us never speak in such terms because we know that that's not how it uh works in reality or it's not effective right uh, whether you're married or unmarried, it's not effective that way. So, uh, so I think this language of economics, um, I think, is is helpful still. Yeah, because it's actually going on. If it's not economics, what are people thinking about sex in terms of? I know for myself, I grew up in evangelical, in youth group. I heard it was a gift. Um, why does that it's miss a the gift. mark? It's an economic thing, right? <laughs> right. It's like it's you, it's an exchange. So right. Yeah. And I'm not arguing that it is a gift. So you were asking. How are others framing it if they don't want to see it as as economics or anything else? You mentioned that uh, it's largely an egalitarian take. Is it totally foreign to people the way you talk about it? How are they? How are they in their minds trying yeah. to trying to think of it? Right. Well, I think uh, sociologists of gender, and they might dispute this. Uh, they don't like the notion of gift. They like the note. They they may accept the idea of exchange, although I don't think they're crazy about that either. Uh, but if they do, it would be a sort of a straightforward egalitarian exchange of equals. Okay. Where in human reality and social relationships, I don't know that it's ever like an exchange of equals. We're, we give things because uh, the other has what we need and we hope to get those things in return. And sometimes the exchange relationship is explicitly so. Sometimes it's more implicitly so. Um, my wife works part-time, but uh, and I work full-time. I make more money than her. But, you know, there's this understanding that she has access to the money I bring home. And there's an understanding that uh, she will more carefully shepherd our children in their educational experiences, even though I'm an educator myself, and that she is a better cook than me, so she cooks. And maybe if I was better at it, I might <laughs> want to do it more. But like all these things, this exchange relationship is infused with um, expectations of 
They we could make, call we could call them gifts, um, but they're they're probably not uh, gifts in the in the sort of completely free way, right? right. There's expectations of reciprocity, so. Uh, and that's just sort of normal in lots of different kinds of relationships, including the employer-employee relationship. Right. You do the work I ask you to do, you get paid, right? So uh, that that is what uh, a lot, much of life is, is is about. But so sociologists of gender aren't crazy about the idea of exchange. Um, I don't think they have really offered a valid replacement of that notion. Uh, but anything that signals that somehow Women should be expected to do X, Y, or Z, whatever the exchange uh, expectations are, um, is just sort of, you know, they don't like to think like that, hear that. Um, but I just think, you know, here it is. Well, I'm, I'm telling you what's going on. So I think the book and its its model resonates with a fair amount of people, including plenty of women who, who look, look at the, the mating market and they can see the exchange relationship. In fact, more traditional people kind of both see it and appreciate it, not just see it. Uh, but they they can look at the, the mating market and say, ah, things are are biased against me, especially women. Like they think that you know, the, the system doesn't work for their for their their highest good. And I think that's totally true i think the and i make the argument in cheap sex that the mating market is um deeply not designed but deeply working towards the advantage of men hmm. uh, who all things considered would prefer a sexual relationship earlier than women on average not among every man and woman but among uh average so you so the, the article or the uh the book focuses on this this model and and the, the the mating market how it has shifted, especially in light of the three technologies that I talk about there: the advent of contraception, especially the pill, um, the rise of uh, internet pornography, and the surge in online dating. All of which are technology technology things that uh, drive cultural change, um, all of them in directions that sort of tend to favor men's interests in um, the mating market. Yes. So if I were to ask you after you said you traveled the furthest for cheap sex and you you were basically just documenting what is happening, uh, how much does sex cost? compared to other, um, not necessarily golden years, not that everybody else didn't have their problems too, but how would you, right, right. How would you yeah. talk about the cost of sex? Like how much does it cost right now? Yeah, well, it's, it's impossible to sort of set this, a market price on. Well, it's probably not impossible. We don't do it in that <laughs> sense. That, um, that romantic notion. Right, right. But uh, it's certainly less expensive than it once was. Now, depends on what we mean about like what are we talking about sex. When I and I talk about um, when I the cost of sex as being like what people might consider access to high quality sexual experiences, right? That's what I said in the book. 
not necessarily coupled. So, so when you talk about access to pornography, like it more carefully, closely mimics real sex than it used to. Um, it's not just a pinup on a wall. Uh, so if, in fact, we can say, hey, that mimics it more closely than previously, that and, and, and I've talked to people who prefer uh, pornography and masturbation to navigating a, a real relationship with a woman, um, then you could say, well, this person, for, for them and for plenty of people out there, this is... Uh, this is sexual access for free or nearly so, okay? Now, if we want to stick to coupled sex, fine, we could do that, um, but it'd still be, the, the price would be much lower than in the, in the past, partly because the threat of pregnancy is much lower. The lar largely the costs to women in, in a, a beginning a sexual relationship are largely emotional now not physical. Um, and, and John Paul II talked a fair amount about the contraceptive mentality. He probably, Paul VI probably started that. The mentality that the average um, sexual experience is infertile, right? So I write in the book about how people just expect women to be, you know, infertile. In, in their interactions with them. So, which I think is a, is a, a decided change from the past, wherein people would have thought, ah, this is risky behavior, right? Because she could get pregnant. And she would have this argument like, you know, we can't do this, uh, I might get pregnant. You know, I like you, but uh, I'm not ready for this level of commitment. Where it's, it's much more difficult to say that today because the expectation is that, well, why aren't you ready? There's, you know, nothing's going to happen. This is just sex. So I think that's uh, um, a process that's biased against women's interests and in, uh, more stable commitment prior to the advent of sex. So when I say things like that, um, sociologists of gender get upset that, you know, I'm suggesting somehow that women are not as uh, sexually aggressive or adventurous somehow as men are. And I know there are examples of that, but on average, I don't think that's the case. Yeah. And it does seem like the technological advances have been driven to make those costs less and less. You mentioned the pill. And now with the, the, the third technology, online dating apps, I mean, we, it's not that those somehow have a direct effect on lowering the price of sex, but what they do is they uh, height, uh, you know, they make simple the search process and the search costs, right? There's such a thing as the cost of searching, and you know it. And I, I use myself as an example in the, the book. Back in college, when I met my wife, um, there was not a whole lot of competition for me, uh, and now you see this with online dating apps like you can see people who are you know have swiped right on you or whatever and like would like to talk to you or continue this conversation and in your mind you're like oh wow i wonder what that's about wow there's somebody who might be interested in me you know after a while of experiencing that you may realize oh it's probably not going to go anywhere but like you know if 15 people who said hmm let's chat that's, that's you know compared to like 
you have one person who's willing to negotiating a real relationship with you and maybe another one who once upon a time said they you know kind of liked you like the, the the risks are high for for not solving your immediate problems in that real relationship right so i'd say that in the book that um i think it's harder to get through the rough patches early in a relationship today because you just assume oh I shouldn't feel like this in a relationship. And I also know that there are other people who might be interested in me. Let's go try them out. So it, it kind of commodifies people based on, you know, criteria you can see in a photograph, right? Right. <laughs> and a brief description of them. So it's like it, uh, it, you know, it's not treating persons as the kind of creations that uh, uh, most Christian theological traditions would argue is reflective of their personhood. Uh, it, it treats them in sort of a, a sexualized or materialized way. So these three technologies seem to work against uh, women's interests in commitment. Um, and then the sociologist gender would say, Mark, I think you're overestimating women's interests in commitment. They can have sex just like men, which of course is true. And I say in the book, they're guaranteed success if that's what they want to do. Yes. And even it seems like abortion. So if something happens, it's still something that can be. Yeah, it's a contraceptive backstop. Right. So. It is interesting. I, I'm, I imagine your colleagues that do not like the way you're speaking would acknowledge that those are, they would champion those technologies. Um, and they, they yeah, would. You, they, could, you could reasonably infer that. With those technologies, I imagine they are getting a little bit closer to what they're hoping with, with like an egalitarian experience of just mm -hmm. as men have sex, mm -hmm. they can also have sex now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of, you know, it's part of the move towards a, in some ways, a genderless future. Mm -hmm. uh, although along the way, I think my colleagues wouldn't mind that if, if um, women's outcomes were far more impressive than men's, which is, beginning to happen. So I'm curious, you you mentioned you traveled and you did the interviews. Was uh... Uh, I, I traveled and did interviews for the uh, uh, the the next book that's coming out next summer. For this book, I did some interviews in Austin and I had a graduate student who did a variety of interviews in I believe it was Denver, Milwaukee, uh, Washington, D.C., Tri-City areas of Tennessee. Oh, for wow. cheap sex. Okay. So just with the data that you found, I guess maybe how are human beings doing with all of this? Is it an overly healthy world that, we're, that we've found ourselves in? You know, it, it's funny. You introduce technologies, and I don't talk a whole lot about social media, but you know, I can observe it now. You introduce a technology, and it's fairly predictable how people will utilize it, although it's, it's unknown at the beginning in some ways because it's novel, you couldn't do this before, and now we've done this. And, but, you know, people uh, are fairly predictable in how they, they, they behave over time, right? We, uh, you know, there's this sort of deep-rooted interest in exploiting things for gain, material, <laughs> sexual, relational. Um, that seems so proven. One wonders, <laughs> one wonders, uh, um, you know, what, if anything, would ever return uh, relationships to 
a place where people value slower pace, getting to know people deeply, um, enduring commitment, a, a sort of healthier, greater respect for fertility. Um, I, I don't see it happening. Hmm. You know, it's not on the horizon. Not sure what that would be. Right. Right. So I always try to, you know, assure my colleagues. <laughs> you might think I'm trying to go back to the 1950s or something, but that's not going to happen. So you don't have to really worry. Um, but it, it does seem that uh, some of them get apoplectic whenever somebody criticizes contraception uh, for its sort of social effects. Um, it's not going anywhere. But so why are you so uh, paranoid when I describe some of the challenges that it has brought about within relationships in the relationship market? It, it would seem, as you mentioned, that human beings, human beings are definitely invested in making sure that some of those things do not go away. Yeah. That, that toothpaste uh, is support safely. Support for it is running pretty high. And uh, <laughs> I don't, uh, you know, and that stands independently of uh, big pharma, which would probably uh, put up a, a whale of a fight to keep producing that. So that toothpaste is safely outside of the uh, the tube. <laughs> That's right. Given all of this and that the economy of sex seems to be just driving it lower and lower. You mentioned the addition of pornography uh, and that even has relations. You made the distinction between pornography and the coupled sex, but they those things are related in helping that drive the price lower um, in terms of commitment and other things. Pornography, uh, if I can clarify, pornography cheapens sex, uh, you know, figuratively in terms of cost by um, by the fact that it can satisfy some measure of male demand for sex, uh, which means that it's difficult to measure how many men are kind of off the market because they just, you know, either they don't feel like they can navigate a real relationship or they don't need one. And we interviewed some young people who talked this way. Um, but whenever you sort of siphon 5%, 10% of a, a, a group of people off the mating market, leaving, that leaves sort of uh, the remaining men in a more advantageous position because now they are outnumbered even more by women. Uh, and so they can operate and conduct the relationships that they, they have uh, in a more advantageous way, meaning cheaper sex. Right? Right, right. So this form of cheap sex, cheapest sex, pornography, contributes to sort of cheaper coupled sex as well. Yeah. And and none of that's going anywhere, as you've mentioned. I don't uh, think so. <laughs> so when you present these things to a group of people, I've seen you do uh, things at Christian events. How would you recommend healthy people and their relation to sex? Right. Um, well, for the longest time, I basically just leveled with people and say, you have to see that this is going on, right? You don't, yeah. because so many people have been sort of bamboozled by it and or they just didn't even see it until, you know, they were in their late 20s and sure her fertility would be starting to be come at risk in her 30s 
And she's like, oh, I was so stupid when I was younger. I didn't see this. Well, it, you know, it pays then to have to be able to glimpse what's going on. Right. Um, so you can act and uh, with a greater wisdom about what's what's happening around you. Uh, that used to be what I just would say. Then I, this last book I wrote on the future of Christian marriage, it's out in August of 2020. I actually have a chapter, like here are some, you know, good ideas I'm discerned for um, uh, how we can sort of make it more of a pro-marriage culture. Not so much, uh, I should say pro-marriage subculture, because I don't really talk about sort of at national levels. Uh, one of the things I think is helpful there is sort of embeddedness in kind of Christian organizations or groups. They can be within church. They could be parachurch organizations that really um, are are focused on faith in some ways, and that along the way you you get this sort of byproduct of uh, relational opportunity and good matches that that go along with it. Now, it doesn't mean everybody's going to get paired up and marry, um, but it does mean that uh, uh, there's better than average opportunity. Now, this is not singles groups, okay, to be clear. Churches will often start singles groups, and I think they're kind of counterproductive. Um, these are groups that are focused on something else, right? So C.S. Lewis... Uh, said, you know, if you focus on heaven, you'll get the earth thrown in. Focus on the earth and you're not going to get nothing, right? So yeah, focus on heaven, these, these groups focusing on their expressions of their faith in some capacity. And, but they're sort of natural meeting opportunities for people. Um, I think that makes good sense. Uh, parents, I think, need to be more mindful about how they counsel their children. Some of them are way too protective and others of them are way too sort of uh, you've got to get so much education. You can't think about this stuff. So, you know, okay, their their kid hit puberty at 12 or 13, and they don't want him to get married until he's over 30, but they want him to be chased. I mean, I think that's just ridiculous, frankly. Does that, does that go back to your, you were telling me originally that uh, you were kind of critiquing certain forms of abstinence in a world where we're prolonging yeah, marriage for yeah, so long. Yeah, right. It's not a form of abstinence. It's more of a... a, a uh, plan for accomplishing it i just think it's um it's fundamentally material right yeah. you wait until you're 30 because you have to go make money because money is really what matters kid so uh i think parents have to be a lot more careful about the kinds of advice they give and, and to respect the freedom of people of their children um i hear sort of horror stories about kids who fall in love in college and they want to get married and the parents are just no way not yet you you know you're only 22 23 you don't know what you're doing uh so it you know drives a wedge between parents and children yeah um, yeah so there are a variety of other things i talk about in that book which is more focused on marriage per se than sex and you said that one's coming but out the, next the, year right 2020 that's in august yeah awesome but it, it certainly reveal that there is uh, a cheap sex mentality across the Christian world. So that has interviews in seven different countries. And um, I asked everybody there, like, do you think that sex is easy? And like, 
it was almost universal. It was like 90 some odd percent. Yeah, totally. Whether they were male or female, they thought this was not something difficult. So it's not an American thing or it's not just an American thing. I've read Forbidden Fruit and Cheap Sex. And so it sounds like I'm missing a few. You you had two more, right? What were the other two? No, I had the Premarital Sex in America. Okay. That was between those two. And okay. then the next one is coming out. Okay, awesome. That was good. Awesome. Well, Professor Regnerus, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time that you offered. You were even more generous with your time. Thanks, Jake. Happy to do it. Would love to do this again for your next book next year. Thank sure. you. Thank yeah. you. Probably sometime in the fall of 2020, I'll be interested in marketing that. Perfect. Thank you so much, Professor. All right. Yep. You're welcome. Thanks. Take care. Take care.